the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Liebson, and any day I get to talk to Pete Peterson, it's a day I look forward to getting out of bed. Pete Peterson is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, how are you this Friday? Great, Seth. Always good to end the week with you and uh, and your listeners. Thank you. You too. We have a comedian, um, a former comedian who works in our offices, a profes- former professional comedian, and you know he worked with a lot of the big guys and stuff, big guys uh, in years past. And everyone likes their comedians, right? So once in a while, if I stumble upon a show or something, I'll run it by this. I'll run it by my friend and ask if he knew him. And he goes, oh, yeah, he's a real comedian's comedian. And I was thinking, you are an academic's academic, um, which <laughs> which I think of as kind of kind – of, uh, how did Shakespeare put it in Henry IV? Witty in himself and the cause of wit in others. That's you, Pete. So thank you for being with us. Thank you very well, much. Well, thank you, sir. You betcha. There's a Always lot to do, a lot to do today. Um, so if I might, um, if I might start with this, Glenn Lowry is trending again for a speech that he gave at your school, and it's yeah. tre- trending again on social media. Tell the audience a little bit about Glenn Lowry and what it is he said and why there is such a thirst for that kind of thing. The academics are coming back. He's a professor at uh, at an Ivy League college, and uh, yeah. that. We're 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 bringing back the academics here in our society, I guess, because we need them. But you talk to us a little bit about what Glenn Larry and who Glenn Lowry is and why he's trending. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, Glenn was good enough to repost a video of a talk that he gave here on campus uh, just a little over a year ago, actually. But it's it's gotten tens of thousands of views since. And Lowry is uh, an economist by trade. Um, got his undergrad at Northwestern, then went on to MIT to get his Ph.D., uh, taught there at MIT, but then went on and became the first tenured, uh, the black first black tenured faculty at Harvard, and uh, has now, uh, after a couple different positions, is at Brown University, has, uh, runs what I think is really one of the best podcasts with uh, John McWhorter, who's another uh, black scholar. At, he used to be in your neck of the woods. Didn't he start his career at UCLA or something like that years ago? That's right. Okay. Yeah, no, he was, that's right. Um, is at Columbia. Uh, McWhorter is now, and the two of them uh, have a podcast affectionately known as the two black guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, really, they are just, um, you know, they are not your typical thinkers on issues of race, certainly not the conventional wisdom that we hear, not only from academia, but even more broadly uh, from the media. And his talk here, uh, Lowry academically is known as essentially the father of social capital, this understanding that the things that can affect uh, positive economic growth, uh, both individually and within a community, is not just your ability to earn money, but also your network of relationships that you have that can sometimes provide jobs, business, work, 
so forth. And he was the one who coined the term social capital back in the 1970s. And so his talk um, that he gave here was essentially a little bit about that history of how we developed the study of social capital and why it means something for this discussion around race, because social capital at its root is grounded in solid, thriving, flourishing communities, starting with the family and then radiating out geographically um, as far as a network of connections that one has to church, to work, to civil society, and so forth. And in discussing social capital, uh, what Lowry is doing is saying that really is the greatest challenge for what might be called the black community, is when we've seen the disintegration of so many of these social and civic institutions, uh, that that really can have uh, really negative economic impacts. And so really calling uh, the black community to re-engage at the local level, uh, think seriously about the importance of family as that primary institution from which all the other institutions uh, radiate out from. And uh, and so really just a, an incredible talk grounded in reams of social science research, but really made so applicable uh, to the moment we're in, in the discussion of race in America. Pete, thank you for that. When I... Um when I interview you and we end up talking about uh, theories from from various scholars or when I do it uh, on, you know, on days that I'm, I'm not privileged to have you on the show, people will people will say, well, what book should I get? What if they were to do one book? Now, you tell me if this is not fair, but my my thought on if on recommending a book from Glenn Lowry is maybe don't go that route. Maybe right. yeah. maybe yeah. don't go that route. He writes at right. a very high academic level, and on the yeah. popular stuff, he's kind of um, change. He's kind of he, he's left behind some of the stuff that he wrote in the popular press. I suppose that's the way to put that's it. Right. And so, John McWhorter, on the other hand, writes very well for the popular press. I think. Yeah. Uh, yep. So for Glenn Lowry, I would say more magazine articles and speeches, right? It's just, right, and his podcast. Again. And, and I, of course, I, yes, of course, yeah. their podcast. But is that right. fair? I don't really know of a book off the top. No, of my, I think that's a okay. great point. Okay. I think you make a great point. Um, at this, you know, in some ways, and this is somebody who I know Lowry um, respects to the highest level. It makes maybe makes more sense to read Soul's work uh, as opposed to hearing some of his talk. Uh huh. Right? So, uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, uh, I mean, again, I think Lowry. I, I was just listening to another one of his speeches today at an event that he did down in in the Dallas area uh, with the American Enterprise Institute uh, just last month. But uh, he is a compelling. Uh, speaker Lowry is. Oh sure. yeah, that speech he gave at the at uh, the 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 prize he won. What is it? The Bradley Prize. That 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 was yeah. one for the ages. You were there for it. Uh, oh, yeah. But you put your finger on another kind of interesting thing. Just a side note, uh, Pete. Academics or scholars or or public intellectuals who write well and speak well, and then the Venn diagram of the of those that can do both well is yeah. pretty. That yeah. shaded area is small. There are some. Um, yep. uh, I I mean, my guy, Jaffa, was not a great speaker, 
beautiful, yeah. elegant writer, not a great yeah. speaker. Um, yeah. Some can do both well. It's not a lot, and it would be fun to think about some of those who can do both really well. But there's, it's, 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 you're usually 80% of the time really great at one or the other. Don't you think that's fair, too? Yeah, I think, yeah, that is a, a difficult gift to uh, cut across those uh, different areas, especially when you're, you're thinking about applying your research and academic discipline to the moment that we're in. Uh, that's, that really is a talent unto itself as well. Two, uh, two that come to mind immediately that do both well. We could probably do more, and we don't need to take up too much time on this. It's just fascinating to me because I, like you, love the spoken word as much as the written word. Hadley Arcus, you know Hadley. I think yes, he, I do. He is I a captivating Hadley, yes. speaker, and he is a ca- and a very clear writer. Um, you may not know as well uh, a, 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 a woman named Ruth Weiss, W-I-S-S-E. Is no. Uh, yeah, a little less, so she's in commentary a lot. But if you ever have the gift of uh, being in her presence, she's one of the most compelling speakers. And it's just when you find it, it's kind of a rare, nice thing to see. That's all. You know, Steve Hayward is one of those guys as well. We've had him here as a. Oh, yeah. Great call. Of course. You know, a great speaker as well as a. I love Bill's writing um, as well. So, yeah, there there are. there are a few out there. Hayward is a great example. Hayward's a great yeah. example because watching him speaks like watching a professional wrestling match a little bit. <laughs> a yeah. little bit. And he's got a great podcast, too. I, yeah. I, I listen to that on a regular basis. Yeah, he sure does. He sure does. Uh, Pete, I want to talk to you about something you posted on Twitter maybe when we come back from the break because this is just – Man, it's either a sign of the times or a one-off, and let's hope it's, hope it's the former and not the latter. But you and I have discussed Rui Tixiera before on this yeah. show, and yeah. I think what you posted, the story about him changing think tanks, has kind of got something interesting behind it. I wonder if we might talk a little bit about that on the other side of this Absolutely. break. Absolutely. No, That's an exciting story. It is. It is. Uh, Pete Peterson is our guest as we head to break. He de- has one of the most active Twitter feeds, at Pete4CA, at Pete, the number four, and then CA, at Pete4CA. I'm hoping that's a temptation for him to run for a big office in California, but we can talk about that when he's not here so we can embarrass him. Pete Peterson is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and I say that because it's a Sisyphean task. It's impossible to embarrass Pete Peterson. I'll be right back. So will Pete. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean and the Brown Family Dean's Chair at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. When we beat up on academia, uh, Pepperdine is the uh, solution, Pepperdine School of Public Policy. If you're interested in a career in public policy at the graduate level, this is the school for you. Pete, um, we were we, I, I just teased before the break an interesting thing in in Washington think tank circles, which may have greater effects in other think tanks or at least in the conservative and liberal think tank community. Um, he's not a name that's kitchen table known, but for anyone who's done policy like you have and I have over the years, everyone knows who a man named Rui Tuchiera is. It's spelled T E I X E I R A. And um, he left a very liberal think tank for a conservative one. Uh, talk to us about this, what, what, what this was about and what you think this might portend. 
Pete, do I have you? Are you able to hear me? Possibly not. I may have lost Pete. For well, I think, there we go. I think where, uh, to share leaving the Center for American Progress, you read the story, even in Politico, it sounds and reads so many, so much like so many of the other stories. I mean, when I started reading it, I, I thought about, uh, the Barry Weiss resignation letter from the New York Times. Yep. Uh, various faculty, uh, who have, uh, left academia, um, that the reasons why Teixeira left the Center for American Progress and went to AEI were really about what he perceived to be a narrowing of the opportunity to think and discuss a variety of issues, uh, especially as it relates to the intersection of demographics and politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, it really was, I, I think, a master stroke by uh, Robert Doerr, who's the president, still fairly new president, the American Enterprise Institute, to bring on Teixeira, who's a, a respected demographer uh, and somebody who really has analyzed uh, politics and, and how things have been changing in the United States, all at the same time making some serious, uh, seriously wrong uh, predictions uh, going back to his belief that uh, the Hispanic population in in the U.S. was going to permanently install the Democrats in a position of power. But that being said, it really was for reasons that had to do with the climate at the Center for American Progress, which he described as being increasingly ideological and narrow-minded. I'm reading a Politico story about his move, and it says that he left the Center for American Progress because it stopped being a place where he could do the work he wanted. The reason, he says, is that the relentless focus on race, gender, and identity in historically liberal foundations and think tanks has made it hard to do work that looks at society through other prisms. In other words, they are overly focused on having a command of their personnel at this think tank to only address issues with one objective and one conclusion, right? These are not free-thinking institutions anymore, evidently. Well, that's right. And, of course, what it means for a a think tank like the Center for American Progress, which is ostensibly tasked with uh, promoting liberal progressive policies, is that if their way of their lenses through which they're looking at the future of American politics are that kind of ipso facto view that if you happen to be of a particular uh, racial or ethnic category, then obviously you are only going to support a certain set of policy prescriptions. Then that's what Teixeira was beginning to come up against. And of course, We've seen it in recent elections uh, that, um, especially in the state of Texas, where particularly when we look at um, Hispanics and Latinos, that they are not voting in the way that think tanks like the Center for American Progress would believe that, uh, that they should be voting. And so for somebody like Teixeira, who has really been about trying to analyze what do the the changing demographics for America mean for the future of America's policy and politics, he was coming up against this hardened view that, uh, again, that the progressive platform, all the way straight through what might be called the woke 
policy regime was naturally going to appeal to ethnic and racial groups that um, we are just not seeing borne out in actual elections. You know, it sounds to me, as you're talking about this, Pete, we were talking a couple weeks ago about a uh, self-fulfilling process or even perhaps a vicious cycle where conservative academics are obviously less and less welcome on college campuses, you know, for tenure track positions. And so they go to the think tanks and whether, you know, they should do that, whether that's helpful to the university and our cause and, you know, keeping an open university or university open to ideas, um, whether that's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy where more and more conservatives aren't even trying to get academic jobs. They just go straight to the think tanks. Interesting. If this is a harbinger, possibly with Tushera's move, if it's a signal that, you know, maybe 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 the only place where freedom of thought is going to exist anywhere in intellectual or academic circles is the think tank community. Maybe. I think that's entirely um And Pepperdine possible. School of Public Policy. Well, of course. But I, I, I also think, you know, just to the point that you were raising, that was essentially, to go back to that Barry Weiss argument, yeah. that even within yeah. predominantly left-wing institutions, there can come a point where people... Uh, who are working in these environments and are progressives themselves are just what you might say they're just not woke enough yeah. for the broader uh, direction of the organization. Um, and I, again, that's something that we're starting to see on some college campuses as well. I think about the recent story of the, the tenured faculty member after several decades at UCLA um, publicly uh, resigning, quitting his job, um, so a person of the left himself, but just said, was saying that it, it had just gotten to a point where it wasn't just that it was woke, it was this hardened ideological viewpoint which brokered no debate or discussion that he just found it no longer tenable for him to remain there. And we saw this with Heather Hang and Brett Weinstein or Weinstein. Yep. Uh, we yep. saw it with Jennifer Say at Levi's. These are people who That's you right. and I would agree with on almost nothing. Almost. Right. Almost. But exactly, one thing. Yeah. But one thing. And in the case of the Weinsteins family, it would have been probably racialization. And in the case of Jennifer Say, it probably would have been getting the damned schools opened, you know? Uh, pardon pardon my French. Uh, and, and on everything else, these people would be probably what you might call, I don't know, I don't even, Bernie Sanders type. Uh, Democrats, uh, yeah. let, let's pick up on on that a little bit, if we can, because we're always yeah. in the evangelical and conversion business, I think, and uh, as adults, and uh, when it comes to politics, let's let's pick up a little bit about whether we're going to be seeing more of that and what yeah. that might look like after November, too. By the way, I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson, Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Delighted to have Pete Peterson with us. He is the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Pete, let me work backwards on this thesis. If this election uh, in, in November goes the way I hope it goes and I think I expect it to go and Republicans do very well, it might even be uh, you know some kind of wave possibly. Um, 
you know what will happen because you've been in these rooms when it happens the other way. Uh, there will be some meetings of, uh, of of Democratic Party officials, think tank types, scholars, pollsters. They'll do a couple reports here and there about how uh, they uh, have abandoned their base and have gone off the rails on a few things here and there that have turned off certain reliable uh, uh, reliable sectors of their party. And then probably not much will change after those things get done and the Washington Post and the New York Times have their have their say about it. But how big a problem do you think the Democratic Party has right now when you see these kinds of things? Rui Tuchiera's move from CAP to AEI, when you see some of these other academics, when you see the polling on Hispanic Americans support for Joe Biden, um, Peggy Noonan's piece today posted before it will print tomorrow about the working class uh, that's now really the Republican Party being the party of the working class that it hasn't been since 1981. Uh, How much of this do you think is going to take place in the Democratic Party? How much do you think the Republican Party is poised to become a much bigger party than it ever was because of this? Well, I think the opportunities are all there for the GOP uh, to become more of that blue-collar party that I know many have been working for for years. Uh, the polling on the, uh, that we've seen in um, especially for Hispanics and Latinos as it um, pertains to recent races, certainly the Virginia governor's race, what happened in New Jersey. You know, Reagan had that great phrase, uh, before becoming a, a Republican, obviously, as we all know, he started as a as a Democrat, an FDR Democrat, was that he never didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left him. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when you see moves like this at the elite level with a Teixeira or a Barry Weiss or uh, faculty members, uh, uh, scholars uh, leaving academic institutions, those are just glimpses into uh, the broader trend line, which I've seen many, even on the left, pundits understand is, frankly, that the Democratic Party is moving further left and the Republican Party is moving right. 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 And one of the things I think you and I have talked about before that I think gets missed about Trump's influence on the party, uh, on the GOP and the 2016 race and certainly 2020 and what's happened over the last couple of years, is the fissures within the Democratic Party have been ideological, while uh, in the Republican Party they've been around the personality of Trump. Okay. And in that, uh, whatever Trump's future is in the party, it certainly it remains significant. But if you were to look at Lynn Cheney's voting record uh, during the Trump years, it I'm sure you would find that at least 90 percent of her votes would line up with the administration's position. Yeah. That the, that the fracture there, the fissure, the polarization is really over Trump himself. Mm-hmm. But the ideolo- ideology undergirding much of the Republican Party, uh, certainly at the federal level, remains fairly fairly, certainly with some differences, uh, consistent. In the Democratic Party, the difference between even an Obama-era Democrat and those 
say, of the squad variety is massive. And the direction and the energy of the party continuing to be so ideological and not brokering any debate, I think really portends so much more difficulty for the Democrats to come out of this era than than the Republicans, and certainly we're going to see evidence of that in November. Let, can we talk a little bit more about that? Do you have time for one more segment, or do you got to run? Yep. I yep. always have to ask because you're beautiful. You're up there in beautiful Malibu, and I always feel <laughs> I always feel like I'm delaying your weekend. But uh, you know, I thank you for bringing some of your uh, your ocean to Phoenix. I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And something interesting I heard about the homeless uh, problem that I wanted to run mm. through your uh, intellectual filter as well. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Pete Peterson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Pete Peterson has been our guest, generous with his time and brain. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Uh, Pete, let me uh, let me just finish this last point uh, with you and the perhaps changing Republican Party and perhaps uh, different Democrat Party, Democratic Party that we have seen over over the years. It seems to me the Democratic Party has changed more than the Republican Party, and we can get into that a little bit and toss it back and forth if you want. But the illustration I use on the Democratic Party, if you want an indication of how leftward they've moved, you and you and I were, were not old enough to remember in real time probably, but we've read enough and studied enough and been around enough people who were there in real time the riots of the 60s and the early 70s, the Black Panther movement, the Weather Underground, uh, Students for a Democratic Society, and all that kind of stuff. You know, the leaders of the Democratic Party, uh, your, your, your Johnsons, your Kennedys, your Shrivers, your Eagletons, your McGoverns, they wanted nothing to do with that. They wanted nothing at all to do with it. They, at every opportunity they could, denounced it. The analogs to those movements, and we all know what they are now, Antifa, BLM, etc., they get countenance from the Democratic Party leadership today. I think I'm not making an insignificant point here, but you tell me you're the teacher. No, I, I think that's a, that's a fair point. There is really no distancing uh, between – I mean, just look at the protests that are happening out in front of the Supreme Court uh, justices' homes – and really the, the near-complete silence by our uh, Democratic legislative congressional leaders on really what is, I think, beyond the pale, uh, especially now that decisions have been handed down, this is nothing but intimidation yeah. that is happening now. Um, so uh, whether it's organized groups or these disorganized mobs that are out in front of uh the house, the homes of our uh, Supreme Court justices, the Democrats really are not standing against this, uh, at least the leadership, in any meaningful way. What's weird is how easy it would be. So we have these weird things going on in 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 in, in, in almost in their own silos. We're holding hearings on violence in the Capitol, i.e., January sixth. Meanwhile, a real member of Congress, Jewish Republican member of Congress, gets attacked with a knife at a speech 
and yeah. there is not a word or a peep from Nancy Pelosi, the president or the vice president. It would be so easy to denounce this stuff, but they oh, won't. And somebody shows up with a gun a block away from a Supreme Court right. justices. Right. Right. I, saying that he's with the there. intent. Yeah. yeah. With the intent. Yeah. yeah. And again, I, I don't remember anything coming from no. Speaker Pelosi. Or, or the president. Or the, or the vice president. It got right. no mention. And it would have been easy. It would have been easy. I think, unless, I don't know, I don't get what the thinking is, but it's concerted thinking because you would think one of them would say something. Exactly right. Uh, And again, it it really, it wouldn't seem like it would take a whole lot, but it just, uh, I think it does show the grip that uh, the more radical part of the Democratic Party and the progressive movement has on uh Democratic politicians and and political leaders. Pete, I have a few minutes left with you, and I I think I learned something this week that never occurred to me, probably my fault, as I'm getting very seriously involved in in understanding and doing something about what we call the homeless issue. Adam Mm -hmm. Carolla was saying the other day to a guest, the problem is calling it the homeless issue. Because it invokes the notion that you have someone who lost his job and didn't have a lot of savings or someone who couldn't then make mortgage or rent. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people who don't want a job and don't want a house. They'd rather a fix than a bed. Yeah, I mean, and again, even the name homelessness beyond the the problems of of broad brushing, what really are a myriad of issues from uh, drug addiction to victims of abuse right. uh, to mental health uh, issues, which are significant parts of uh, various homeless populations. It also connotes, as you as you touch on, a certain understanding, which would seem logical, that if the person is without a home, then the answer right. is the solution to give them is a home. cheaper homes. That's not right. the issue. Yeah, and and what that has precipitated, especially out here in Los Angeles, is uh, what's known in the in, in the, uh, this field as a housing-first approach, right. which is to say um, the passage of numerous bond issues here in the Los Angeles area, billions of dollars in support of this housing-first approach, which argues that what we really need to do is put the homeless in homes. And yes, there will be some wraparound services, but the level of accountability is usually completely absent from these programs. Um, and we are in a place now here in Los Angeles where, uh, to the degree houses or homes are being built, they are astronomically expensive, not nearly addressing the issue, even if you wanted to address it in that way. Right. And the fact that, and to the degree that houses are being built for homeless people to go into, uh, you're you're just really continuing the problems, and they're not being addressed, whether it's mental illness or or drug addiction. Pete, well said. This is going to be a struggle, um, and and the reason I want to focus on it is we are at the nascency of this issue, meaning we could actually fix it right about now, and maybe we have a little bit of time to do it before it extrapolates and explodes so beyond our ability to do it right now is right when we can do it at least speaking from what i'm seeing in phoenix 
So I, yep. you know, it's 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 more exacerbated in L.A. and of course uh, the Frisco area, San Francisco area. But it seems to me we get our heads straight on this right now. We can solve a massive problem uh, in its track. Stop it in its tracks. That's that's the reason I'm kind of thinking about the terminology. Would you work with me that's on that a little bit? Can and I use you to? Can I work with you a little bit on that? Over. Of course. Thanks. Appreciate it. Pete Peterson, you are such a delight and champ. Uh, thank you for conservatism, for academia, for higher education, for thinking people. Uh, Dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, if you're interested in a career in public policy, that's the school for you. Uh, and Pete Peterson is the dean there. Publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. And uh, follow him on Twitter. It's, as I say, a greatly active Twitter feed, at Pete, the number four, CA. I'm Seth Liebson, and we will be right back. Thank you for spending some of your day with us, some of your week with us. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, I will um, – the few people on hold, uh, call back on Monday and let us know you were on hold Friday and we didn't get to you. We'll put you right at the top. Appreciate your patience and understanding. I want to wish you all a good weekend and leave you with this thought from – everyone knows the man in the arena part of the Theodore Roosevelt speech and gave in Paris in 1910. This one's a little less known. It's from the same speech. This this uh, this what I'd like to close with today. I believe that a man must be a good patriot before he can be and as the only possible way of being a good citizen of the world. Experience teaches us that the average man who protests that his international feeling swamps his national feeling, that he does not care for his country because he cares so much more for mankind, in actual practice proves himself the foe. Of mankind, that the man who says that he does not care to be a citizen of any one country because he is a citizen of the world is in very fact usually an exceedingly undesirable citizen of whatever corner of the world he happens at that moment to be in. I love that. C.S. Lewis said something very similarly, but uh, Teddy Roosevelt beat him to the punch, but that's okay, too. Folks, it's uh, been a long week, and I want to thank you again uh, for being uh, with us. We take none of you or this for granted. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to communicate with you back and forth. If you are engaged in the primaries um, and the campaign and the canvassing, keep it up. Citizen is a noun, but Ronald Reagan thought it was a verb in a good way, in the sense that it required action, action. The indolent have no place here in this country. I think Teddy Roosevelt would agree with that as well. So until Monday, God bless you all, and class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.